0: Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than 100 interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, artists, and more, who helped to found and shape the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson, and today we explore a conversation that I had with Hardy Jones in 2012 at his home in Florida. Hardy planned a career as a journalist after graduating college, but as life would have it, something else caught his interest. With college degree in hand and a couple of journalism jobs under his belt, Hardy heard about a pod of spotted dolphins that visited and interacted with a team of treasure salvage divers working in the Bahamas. After assembling a small film crew and mounting an expedition to the Bahamas, Hardy released his first film called Dolphin in 1977. Since the late 70s and the release of his film Dolphin, public outcry grew because they learned about the tuna fishery that used dolphins as indicators for other species which resulted in high levels of dolphin bycatch and deaths. During his career, Hardy produced 77 conservation films and authored a book called The Voice of the Dolphin that detailed more than 30 years of conservation work with wild dolphins. The last years of Hardy's life were spent concentrating on and documenting the slaughter of dolphins for use as shark bait in Peru. His film Dolphins in Danger Provided video evidence of the slaughter of approximately 15,000 dolphins a year in the longline fishery of Peru, as well as evidence that Peruvian fishermen were taking underage and endangered sharks in the fishery. Hardy was also very concerned with the increasing menace of chemical contaminants in our marine food chain. In 2003, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a form of blood cancer. That is often linked to toxic chemicals such as dioxins. Hardy died in 2018. He left a lasting foundation in the way we view and treat cetaceans and the way that our tuna industry functions during tuna capture. Most individuals involved with marine mammals in their early careers follow a circuitous path. Let's listen to what Hardy had to say about the beginning of his career. I started out as a journalist. I started out in news.
1: I originally worked for a uh, wonderful rock and roll radio station in New Orleans, and then I went to uh, United Press International. um, United Press International, um, after working in the Peace Corps down in Peru for some period of time, I came back to New York and uh, went to work for CBS News and spent uh, three years there, with uh, within the uh, space unit, the election unit, and uh, for a time I did uh, general research. Then I moved up to becoming a, a network writer. And uh, then I left CBS and I became um, a, a, the uh, news director at a CBS affiliate station, and I, I did the anchor work there. There came a point where I, decided to leave CBS. And I went to California during the very heady days of consciousness movements in California. And while, while I was involved in that introspection, I uh, met Dr. John Lilly. And Lilly, for whatever you may say about him, um, was an absolute genius. He was a man who understood how the mind works and uh, he could explain the workings of the mind in a way that would blow your mind so of course Lily is famous to most people for dolphins and I became aware of his dolphin work and he compared dolphins and humans and he would say well the dolphins are aquatic and humans are terrestrial. Dolphins don't have hands. Humans have hands with opposable thumbs. We can manipulate the world. Dolphins can't. On the other side, the similarities are that the dolphins and we have very large brains, comparable in many, many ways, not identical, but comparable, equally complex, he contended. And so that by observing dolphins, we can learn a lot about ourselves and, of course, learn about this fascinating other creature that shares the planet with us. Well, being young and naive, I said, that's really fascinating. I think I'll go out and make a movie about dolphins in the open ocean. And people said, oh, you can't do that. It's impossible to approach dolphins. This is in the late 70s. It's impossible to approach dolphins in the open ocean. Jacques Cousteau told me you can't do, you couldn't do it. And uh, they said, get, you know, get some dolphins in a marine park and uh, make your movie there. And I said, no, nah, I don't want to do captive dolphins. I want to be in the open ocean. And so I just, one of the things I had learned at CBS is if you pick up a phone and you just keep hammering the keypad, if you do it long enough, and keep getting connected, you'll finally find the answer to the question that you're seeking. And so I did that and I called all around the world and got many, many, many people saying, you can't get in the water with dolphins. We've tried, you can't do it. But I met a, uh, through this, I met a, a treasure diver down in Florida named Bob Marks. And Marks had been working on a ship called the Nuestra, uh, uh, shipwreck. Called the Nuestra Señora de la Maravilla in the White Sand Ridge area of the Bahamas. And I told him that I wanted to make a film that would stop the slaughter of dolphins in the tuna nets, which was rampant in those days. There were hundreds of thousands of dolphins dying in those days. And Marx said, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm going to tell you where you can find dolphins and get in the water with them and be in the water with them for hours for the purpose that you described but if you misuse this i'll kill you (laughs) and marx is a huge beefy guy who looks like a a pirate and uh, so i said okay i promise and so he took took us to a map and he put an x on it and it was the place which is pretty famous now the white on the white sand ridge and he'd been uh, working digging for treasure out there for a long time and he had found a school of spotted dolphins that would come after he used the blasters and kicked up all the sand the dolphins would come in and there would be all sorts of food in the water so they were attracted to that. But he said they were also very attracted just to hanging out with people. So we got, uh, I, I formed a film partnership and uh, we chartered a boat, went out there and uh, we had quite a lot of money invested by this time. And it was only at the last minute at five o'clock on the day when we arrived at that location that I said to my partner then, um, what do you you don't suppose that Marx was leading us on a wild goose chase, do you? And he got a look of shock on his face. It's like it had never occurred to him either. But instants later, the school of dolphins came blasting out of. The wave tops. Fairly rough afternoon, and they just blasted through the tops of the waves and came to our bow. And I think on that very first occasion, there were about sixty dolphins. That was back before a lot of boats began be- began visiting, and we spent uh, a couple of hours in the water with them. It was during the month of June, so the sun was up pretty late and uh, but eventually the uh, captain on board the mothership we had whalers running around trying to keep people herded and safe but the the captain said uh, bring everybody back to the boat and uh, that was when the sun was going down and the dolphins then disappeared and we got back on the boat and we knew we had found something just absolutely extraordinary that this contact between humans and wild animals I I was not able to say any place in the world where humans could interact with wild animals um, in that manner so I began going back year after year after year and uh, made an initial film which uh, appeared in 1979 on PBS it was a kind of lyrical film called Dolphin and I made uh, uh, many, many films out there since then. Most recent was nineteen, uh, came out in two thousand and five, called the Dolphin Defender. See, PBS called it the Dolphin Defender. I wasn't really enamored with that title, but they said that's the one that the audience rated best. So that was the last iteration of the, of being out there.
0: Hardy had this to say about how his interest in marine mammals unfolded during the production of his first film.
1: I didn't know when I jumped into the water with those dolphins in the Bahamas and came to learn of how absolutely spectacular they are as fellow creatures. You can have it as a concept, but when you spend hours in the water with them you know individuals you have babies come up to you um, you have eye contact with them you know it's a deeper experience and so i was um, i also felt somewhat indebted to the dolphins that they would just let me in and at Almost the same time that I learned about those spotted dolphins in the Bahamas, I learned about the uh, slaughter of dolphins in Japan at a place called Iki Island. Taiji's famous today, but Iki was the original place that got world attention. And of course, I was aware of the uh, situation with the the tuna fishery where so many dolphins were being killed. So it was was this world of wonder and world of horror opening at the same time, and that just brought me on the path of um, having an intense interest in dolphins that uh, persists to this, to this day. Um, the original, uh, the, eventually, the slaughter of the dolphins in uh, the tuna nets diminished, and we played a small r- role in that. I did a film for Turner Broadcasting, Audubon Television, in the middle to late 1980s, and it included a segment on the tuna fishery. And in those days the internet didn't exist, so what we did is we attached a 900 number to it, and that allowed people to make a call that went to Western Union they paid I think it was six dollars for this service and it would put a a telegram on the desk of the chairman of Heinz which owned Starkist and he got uh, buckets and buckets full of telegrams the next day saying why do you kill dolphins? And he then very quickly within a couple of weeks announced that they would not take tuna caught on dolphins in the future so you know it's nice to know that the film work can have an impact Uh, additional impact was at Iki that that it caused the the footage that we uh, took at Iki Howard Hall and I in uh, 1980 went around the world by satellite I went back used my CBS connections and it was syndicated worldwide and caused just a tsunami of protest against Japan And Iki Island and a number of other villages where they hunted dolphins pulled out of the dolphin hunting business. There's so much fixation on Taiji these days because of the success of the film The Cove that people think that there's never been any change in Japan, that it's just Taiji killing dolphins. Um, You know, they've been doing it and they're still doing it so that but what they don't realize is that in the 80s quite a lot of villages dropped out and part of it was because they didn't want to dishonor Japan in the way that uh, Iki had brought shame on the country internationally Um, and when people talk about taiji they don't talk about the fact that there have been in the order of 18,000 dolphins killed in the northern part of Japan. Dolls porpoise that are killed by harpooning. But you just can't get at it. You'd have to follow a boat around all day if you could ever get a boat to follow. Um, And then you'd see one dolphin killed. Whereas Taiji is almost like a theatrical set where it's in a little cove. It's on a fairly main road into the town. You can just stand there and shoot it. There wasn't, I don't know if I should, well, give this away as a, but um, I mean, there was no reason to put on camouflage clothing and run around to make the movie The Cove, except to amp up the dramatic impact of it, because we've, we always just stood on the road or on this uh, uh, escarpment above and shot down. You can still do it. You can still do it now.
0: Nearing the conclusion of our interview, I asked Hardy if he was concerned with contaminants in our marine food chain. Listen to what he had to say with a word of warning. You may be quite shocked.
1: Well, I have a particular personal um, interest in the levels of pollution in the oceans because uh, I was diagnosed in 1997 with chronic mercury poisoning. And uh, at the time I was eating swordfish and tuna steaks two three times a week and uh, thinking that it was a very healthy diet i'd had that with a little broccoli or string beans or something like that and i thought this has got to be healthy you know low in fat and so I, i was eating a lot of it and then i i began to feel a lot of fatigue and i went to a a very gifted chiropractor in los altos california and he said, well, would you mind if I took a few snips of your hair? And I said, no. And he uh, took them and sent it out and came back. And the chart had me mercury outside the box. I mean, the, the bar went up to the highest point on the box and then disappeared. So I had a huge amount of mercury as well as <coughs> lesser, <coughs> lesser amounts of uh. Uh, cadmium and i I think aluminum or something like that but the main one was mercury and then in 2003 i was diagnosed with multiple myeloma which is a cancer of the uh, the blood it's called a blood cancer Um, it involves the bone marrow and the ability to produce cells in the in the bone marrow and I met a uh, a multiple myeloma specialist who told me that myeloma can be linked to uh, chemical toxins. For instance, there's a high level of, high incidence of myeloma among veterans of Vietnam who were exposed to uh, Agent Orange. And there appears to be a high incidence coming from the first responders at the World Trade Center uh, where they in, in, inhaled a lot of contamination. So, okay, so I became interested. I said, what were what my levels of these chemicals? And I took a test, which uh, is $4,000 to do it, uh, not cheap, but I came back that I had very high levels of particular congeners of PCBs, TBDs, hexachlorobenzene, uh, DDE, and a couple of others. So I realized that I did have very high levels of these uh, chemicals in me. And uh, whether or not they are complicit in the uh, fact that I developed multiple myeloma, nobody can ever say for sure. But, you know, I have it. Other people have... Who have high levels of these chemicals develop myeloma and uh, I had very high levels so I have a great interest in it and I have tried to correlate I'm, I'm going to try to correlate in Peru not only whether there's we know there's a high incidence of diabetes but I'm going to try and find out whether there's a high level of myeloma as well one of the most truly disturbing facts that i've learned in the pursuit of persistent organic pollutants in the oceans and how they what effect occurs when they move up the food chain is that in greenland among the people who hunt and depend upon marine mammals for their uh, subsistence there is as you to the great to the degree that they do depend upon marine mammals for subsistence there is a diminution in the number of male babies born and an increase in the number of females born so that in some cases the ratio is 2 to 1 females which is completely wacky 2 to 1 is wacky in other vill- villages there's actually zero male Babies have been born in a, quite a number of years. Females are born. And what is apparently going on is that the, the chemicals that we call POPs, organic pollutants, persistent persistent organic pollutants, it POPs are en, est, estrogen imitators. They mimic the effect of estrogen in the body so that if you consume these chemicals, such as PCBs, PBDEs, you are doing the equivalent of consuming estrogen. So in females, it contributes to what you could call a super-feminization, and in males, it is a feminization of the male. I wrote an article for the Huffington Post on the increase in bra sizes among uh, Western uh, industrialized nations. And it does appear that these estrogen imitators getting into the food and they are absorbed in fat. So you don't have to just eat, it's not just fish, it's any kind of fat, animal fat, dairy. Um, There's an increase in the amount of these chemicals in females and they're developing larger breasts. And so the uh, companies that produce bras have responded by making much larger bra sizes um and we were in peru just recently and we asked about the ratio of girl babies to boy babies born in san jose and it turns out that the number of girls is very significantly higher than boys we just have begun to explore that it's just at the narrative point right now that we've been told that We'll, we'll go into the data and go into the school records and birth records to verify this, but there it is, from Greenland to Peru. People are being affected by these terribly
0: toxic chemicals. That's all we have time for today, and I thank you for listening. If you would like to watch Hardy's complete interview, or Other Scientist Historical Perspectives interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.